This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. A new push for answers tonight in a disturbing cold case murder with a child victim. Police say Joshua Harmon was beaten and strangled then buried in the woods in Roswell. Now 31 years later to the day, the case remains unsolved and the eight-year-old's killer remains on the run. News Edge reporter Jacqueline Schultz joins us now. And Jacqueline, you were the only reporter to speak with his mother today. And I'll tell you, the pain and the horror for this poor mother is still evident after 31 years. Meanwhile, her killer, the little boy's killer, roams free. Mother Sherry Harmon hopes those who remember her son Joshua can finally help police find that person responsible. Joshua deserves for the people to know someone hurt him. Eight-year-old Joshua Harmon was an adventurous boy who loved nature, animals, and playing outdoors. On May 15, 1988, in the woods where he'd play, police found his body. He was beaten and strangled. Some days I don't even want to get out of bed. Not knowing is what kills you. Mother Sherry Harmon is now 64 years old and has stage four cancer. She will always feel the pain of losing her son. As his mother, I deserve to know who did this and why. That's when my world stopped. 31 years ago to the day at the old Roundtree Apartments off Raintree Drive, Joshua was playing outside and didn't come home for dinner. No one could find him. For two days, police, fire crews, and volunteers searched for him. Crews found him under dirt, pine straw, and logs. His mother says someone removed all his clothes. Decades later, the murderer roams free. Maybe he's out there doing this to other children. Through the years, Roswell police say investigators have questioned people. No suspect was ever named. With new detectives on the case and new technology to search forensic evidence, police hope people can bring them leads. Sherry says Joshua's neighborhood friends would now be in their 40s. She hopes if they saw something all those years ago, they can now come forward. I can't tell you what it means to me. I mean, to know there's there's actually still some people out there that know about them, that care about them, and that want to see justice done. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. Thanks again to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for joining the show last week to talk DNA and cold cases. I know that the listeners love having him on, and so do I. He always has intelligent insights, so I would expect to uh, hear him again sometime soon in the future. But I want to continue the trend of focusing on cold cases that have been solved recently by DNA. 
because it's just a bit more uplifting than some of the unsolved cases that I cover. And that's not to say that they're not all tragedies. I mean, they are. But in at least these cases, there is a tiny fraction of closure. Plus, I think it reinforces departments and police departments across the world to look into their own cold cases and see if they can't find answers for some of those families and communities as well. The technology and the recent string of arrests can only embolden officials to keep going, and that can only be a great thing. And on this week's show, I want to take you back to the spring of 1988 in Atlanta, Georgia. The city was still recovering from the Atlanta child murders. This was the murders of 22 to 30 children between 1970 and 1981, and when the news hit the wire in 1988 that 8-year-old Joshua Harmon was missing, everyone in the city held their breath and hoped that this wasn't the beginning of another string of killings. As most of you guys know, in the Atlanta child murder case, police named and prosecuted Wayne Williams as the perpetrator of the crimes. This was in spite of the police being told that Williams may not be responsible for all of the actual killings. But that didn't actually stop the department from claiming Williams was most likely the culprit, in spite of it being a mere impossibility because of the fact that he would have had been killing a few times a week and the guy lived with his parents. Not to say that he couldn't have gotten away with it, but unlikely. Williams was eventually convicted of two murders, but the other killings were not prosecuted and actually subsequently were dropped off the radar of investigators. John Douglas, the famous FBI profiler and author of Mindhunter, was adamant Williams couldn't have been the only killer. If you have Netflix, I recommend season two of Mindhunter because it focuses on the Atlanta child killings. And before everybody freaks out, I know it's a fictional show, but it is based off of Douglas's book and the true crimes that he did investigate. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the Atlanta child killings and don't feel like reading, you can just flip on Netflix and watch season two. Unfortunately, we aren't going to get a season three, but take what we can get. And again, the city of Atlanta was a melting pot of diversity. The majority of the victims in the Williams case were African-American and came from lower-income neighborhoods that surrounded downtown Atlanta. Where you had Joshua, who was from Roswell, which is in North Fulton County. And the city is considered a suburb of Atlanta, despite the fact that it has nearly 100,000 people. And it's actually considered the eighth-largest state in Georgia. And Roswell does have a pretty affluent historic district and is most definitely not low income. The average household income is near $100,000 per year, so very middle class. But Roswell does have that old southern feel to it. I mean, they have plantations mixed in with, you know, the most current architecture. And they do go out of their way on their website to make it look like a really nice place to live. But back in 1988, and Joshua Harmon, who lived at 1456 B. Roundtree Crossing, and was last seen playing 
near the lake that backed up to his family's apartment. Rescue workers and divers actually searched that lake the Monday after he disappeared. Again, Roswell authorities organized a search party, and they were looking for Josh until nightfall. This was after his parents had reported the 8-year-old missing on May 15, 1988. The newspaper goes on to state that the search included a 60-acre wooded area that surrounded the Roundtree Apartments. Now, Joshua was a special education student at Kimball Bridge Elementary School. Now, again, as I mentioned, the search was suspended at dusk, but the Roswell police spokeswoman, Becky Nelson, said that night, quote, we are going to regroup and continue interviewing neighbors and children he went to school with for other leads. Joshua's family had just moved to the apartment complex near the intersection of Holcomb Bridge and Georgia 400 three weeks prior to him going missing. And some of the police officers actually believed that he may have been trying to return to his former residence. Miss Nelson said, quote, We're not going on the assumption he may have run away from home rather than abduction. He may have become disoriented in the woods and could still be walking. Family members told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Joshua had a learning disability and seldom wandered far from his family's apartment. Cherry Laws, Joshua's mother, said, quote, he was easily frightened and intimidated. And again, Joshua was reported missing at 8.30 or 7.30 p.m. on May 15, 1988. And as we see in all of these cases, more than 50 firemen, police, personnel, as well as volunteers that included family members and friends joined the search. Now, police would eventually go apartment to apartment the day after Josh was reported missing, but had no luck. The Holcomb Crossing Apartments on the other side of Georgia 400, which is where the family previously previously lived, were also searched. And Roswell Police Captain Mike Brown said, quote, we're not ruling out anything at this time. We're just trying to eliminate the possibilities. In the AGC article, and according to the boy's grandfather, Ray Carlisle, Joshua had actually been upset earlier Sunday afternoon because three teenage boys had, quote, roughed him up after Joshua threw a rock at an apartment where one of them lived. Although this may have sounded promising, police didn't think the teens had anything to do with Joshua's disappearance. Josh's mom said she became concerned about 7 p.m. Sunday when she heard the bell of an ice cream truck that regularly came through the neighborhood. And she told the paper, quote, I wondered why he didn't come and ask for money to buy ice cream. So when Joshua went missing, at the time he was wearing cut-off blue jean shorts and a white t-shirt. Standard operating wear in 1988 Georgia. He had blonde hair and weighed a mere 55 pounds. In another AGC article titled Body of Roswell Boy Found, Police Investigate Three Suspects, that was written by Kathy Scruggs and Diane E. Stepp, uh, who were staff writers. And Stepp wrote a number of articles on this case, and her writing has actually been a valuable resource in researching this episode. So kudos to them. 
And I have to say it once again, there was nothing quite like good newspaper writing, and it is something that has sadly gone by the wayside. I don't even believe newspapers hire copy editors anymore. I mean, if you look at a paper today compared to the 80s, it's night and day. Newspapers back then basically were squeezing everything we find on the internet today into an actual physical copy. I hate to hate on the industry, but boy, did they miscalculate the impact of the internet and its impact on their business. I mean, whoever thought the print business could survive without building a true digital presence is clearly out of a job. I mean, I live here in Cleveland, and our newspaper, The Plain Dealer, is pathetic. I mean, it is a joke compared to what it was back in its heyday. And again, it's still mostly just regurgitated information from the internet. So anyway, I hate going down these tangents, but I have to ask, I mean, do I believe there is still a place for a physical newspaper to exist? Honestly, I don't. Unless you're the New York Times who wisely built a digital strategy, at the end of the day, I think we're going to end up with basically four main papers. The New York Times, the LA Times, the Post, that is the Washington Post, and one of the Chicago papers, either the Tribune, most likely the Tribune. Anyway, but they'll be the ones feeding any local papers who do survive the bloodletting that is continuing to occur at pretty much every newspaper across the country. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. So, I just get fired up when I see great journalism and I see how far we've fallen in such a short amount of time. And it just... Oh, get off your Facebook feed, please. Anyway, I'm off my tirade. Back to the story. Ultimately, the search came to a quick, sad end when the partially clad body of eight-year-old Joshua Harmon was found covered with pine straw and debris in the dense woods just a few hundred yards from the family's apartment. Now, the AGC reported Roswell Police Lieutenant Joan Rollins said that Assistant Fulton County Medical Examiner Sergeant Joyce Vaughn had positively identified Joshua by using photographs. Now, a preliminary investigation at the crime scene showed that the child died from a blow to the head and was most likely killed that Sunday night. Now, it was determined, or it was not determined, I should say, if the child had been sexually molested, and police were waiting on an autopsy to, to confirm the cause of death. Quote, We are treating this as a homicide, Miss Rollins said, adding that the child was believed to have been killed where the body was found. The Georgia Bureau of of investigation, or the GBI, decided it was time to join the investigation. In the same article, the reporters state Joshua's father, Larry Harmon of Douglasville, had joined the search for the boy, and when he was told of the discovery of the body, he had fallen to his knees and sobbed. He had the unenviable, unenviable task of breaking the news to the rest of the family, and it didn't go well. As you can imagine, Joshua's mother and stepfather, uh, Cherry and Douglas Laws, they actually both fainted and both had to be taken to North Fulton Regional Hospital. And that was according to Josh's uncle, Chip Hollander of Norris. But his parents insisted that Joshua had been abducted. Quote, we are the ones that know him best and we know Joshua did not run away. 
his stepfather said a few hours before the body was found. He told the AGC, quote, Joshua was too frightened of everything, too dependent on his mother to be away from her long. He would not leave in any stressful situation. Joshua was described by his parents as a nature nut who loved the lake that backed up to his family's apartment. Quote, he loved it there. He liked finding animals, ducks, new friends. He had no desire to leave. And again, I mentioned earlier that Joshua was a special ed student at Kimball Elementary School. Uh, and that was Kimball Bridge. And you may think he had issues, but his uncle said that he was very emotionally well-adjusted and did not have behavioral problems. And he said, quote, I knew in my heart and everybody in the family knew he did not run or walk away. Things did take a weird turn, though, when family members did tell police that they had received an anonymous phone call shortly before 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Again, that's the Tuesday before the body was found, saying, quote, I've got your kid. Police traced the call and were investigating the lead Tuesday afternoon. Again, that's the Tuesday after Joshua had gone missing. Now, this is just the kind of crap that sucks in these investigations and what these investigators have to deal with because for some reason people like to be a part of the story, not just let investigators do their job. No, they just want to be an asshole. And this person clearly was that kind of person because we never found out if they were involved or not. And again, it's just it's just mean. I mean, it's just plain mean, and you shouldn't do that to people, especially people who are suffering. Just adding insult to injury. So, it's just terrible. And, again, we never learned if there was any connection to the Roswell area or this phone call. And the way that Joshua's body was found, it was actually, according to the police, it was really an accident. And... Lieutenant Moss was the one who had discovered Josh's body and he just had been walking through, as I said, very dense woods. And he said that there was this very thick bush back there and he must have missed him the day before, but that's where they found him. And again, family members had mentioned, as I said before, about the phone call and it's just so flipping rude to call these people and <laughs> it's just crazy and I mentioned before about Scruggs and Step and how they were just killing the coverage back in 1988 no pun intended I mean this is a tough story for anyone involved and their reporting is very thorough and impressive I mean they worked together on a few articles about this case but the one titled Children counseled after slain as police focus on five suspects really is a telling account of what life was like for the parents, students, and faculty of Joshua's schools. They go on to write, quote, Counselors are trying to steer Roswell children and parents back to normal routines while police continue their search for Joshua Harmon's killer. Roswell police narrowed the focus of their investigation of the slaying of the eight-year-old to two areas and have five prime suspects, Lieutenant Joan Rowland said on Thursday. 
The detective would not elaborate on the suspects, but she said a convicted child molester who had escaped Sunday from an Alpharetta prison is no longer a prime suspect. We have told teachers to pick out children at risk, those who seem upset or bothered by it, and have them talk with a counselor. Joshua's funeral was held at 11 a.m. just a few days after his body was discovered. And again, inaccurate rumors pretty much fueled all these children's fears. And it was the job of the principal and the counselors and pretty much the parents to help these kids deal with this awful tragedy. And again, apparently Josh had gone to Mimosa Elementary School for first grade and then transferred to Kimball Bridge for his learning disability. And again, like police, psychologists, social workers, and counselors, I mean, they met with teachers and students throughout the week. And it was just one of those things that they, that's what they have to do. I mean, it's part of being an authority figure. It's part of being a teacher. It's part of being an officer. You have to make these children understand that, one, they're not necessarily in danger, and two, what can happen if things do go wrong. So it becomes like a catch-22. You don't want them to know too much because you don't want them to live their lives in fear, but you also don't want them to be naive enough to think that bad things don't happen. And clearly, it does. And in this particular article, teachers actually, they talk about how the teachers rode school buses home with children on the Wednesday after the body was found. And they've been basically encouraged all the children to go straight home and to walk in groups or with a buddy. And it reminds me of when I became a true crime podcaster with a case from my childhood. And as anybody who listens to the show knows, that's the case of Amy Mahalovic. And again, I was 10 years old, and this was 1989. And I recall pretty much exactly how scary things were. I can even remember discussing her case with teachers. And again, you know, we're still hoping for answers on that case. And, you know... As far as Joshua goes, I mean, he had just, all he had was dyslexia. I mean, it wasn't like he had major issues. And it's just frustrating for a kid who has a learning disability in 1988 because there really probably wasn't the treatment out there that there is today for students who suffer these kinds of disabilities. I know that having known teachers, you know, special ed is just, built into school systems nowadays and I don't believe that that was the case back then. I know that I had some speech lessons when I was a kid, but I don't know if that was related to this type of situation. But either way, it's one of those interesting things that uh you experience as a child because it is embedded into your brain that bad things happen and for the people that grew up at the Roundtree apartment complex and who went to school with Joshua this is a case that has stuck with them for 31 years 30 33 years now and again 
since they didn't have a prime suspect in 1988, the community was in fear and the fear was palpable. So what they did was they actually created a neighborhood watch group and a board to relay residents' concerns to the apartment management. They were advised by the local hospital to form a group where people could be heard and they wouldn't feel alone. Again, people who set these programs up are amazing. They take charge when the worst of the worst is happening. I mean, nobody wanted to see Joshua killed. He was an innocent little boy. And they were going to do the damnedest to prevent it from happening again. A quote from the AGC says, Everybody was afraid since no one has been charged and apprehended in the case. So a quick note in the article that I mentioned before about the escaped prisoner from a correctional institution in Alpharetta. He actually coincidentally escaped just six hours before Josh had been reported missing. And it's just crazy that, you know, you have an escaped child molester and then you have a child go missing. And then you have the police say that he's no longer a suspect. And at this stage of the investigation, now reward money was being offered. Uh, $2,000 was offered by Paul Irwin, who had operated three preschools. And another $500 was contributed by a Roswell businesswoman for information leading to an arrest and conviction in Joshua's slain. But before the case went completely cold, the police had one more route that they were going to try. And in compliance with subpoenas, three Atlanta television stations gave videotapes of their coverage of events surrounding Joshua Harmon's slain to the department. Police had subpoenaed footage from... WSB-TV Channel 2, WXIA-TV Channel 11, and WAGA-TV Channel 5. Police also filmed the funeral at Roswell United Methodist Church, but they wanted to view funeral footage from TV stations as well. Quote, We just want to see who was there. It is possible that whoever did this may have actually attended the funeral. And that was according to Acting Assistant Chief C. Michael Brown. And... Like most Hail Marys, this one also failed, and the case would go frigid. It was actually only about a week after Josh's death when a Roswell police lieutenant said they were still making progress, and they hadn't quite run into a stone wall, but it was the next month when the police went quiet, and the cops really had no new leads. And much to this dismay of the community the case went really cold really fast and fast forward a year and an article titled killer still saw it in the slaying of boy eight reward may be key to solving 88 case written by chuck bell now he went on to write about how it had been a little more than a year since eight-year-old Joshua Harmon had been slain near his family's Roswell apartment, but his mother says she still has a hard time convincing herself he's gone. Quote, I keep hoping it will turn out to have been a mistake, that the body they found really wasn't his, and I'll wake up one morning and find him back at home. And I know that's not going to happen, but I can't help wishing. Again, Joshua's killer hasn't been caught, and authorities did say 
at this time that the reward money had reached $7,000. So a year later, it was up to nearly $10,000. And it was, quote unquote, still an active case. We are still working on it. We occasionally get some new information. And when we do, we follow it up and see where it leads us. We've heard this before many, many times. And unfortunately, in cold cases, the cops are in a same position that a lot of us are in. We're just waiting for somebody to say something. And again, in the year since her son was killed, Miss Mrs. Laws had gone through counseling and she actually moved with her husband to Woodstock. And basically, some families have who have a missing child stay in their home in the hopes that their missing child one day will return. I mean, I know that was the case in Johnny Gosh's situation or current situation. Joshua's mom falls into the category where they felt too burdened by the tragedy to stay in the apartment that they had lived. And she said that, uh, quote, we couldn't stay in the apartment. I still can't drive through that part of Roswell. I miss him a lot. I was a single parent for five years, and Joshua was my best friend. Needless to say, but that is heart-wrenching to read and write about. I mean, I can't even fathom what this poor family was going through, and all these families with missing people and persons. I just, it's just awful. And, you know, like any hot case... In 1988, there was no shortage of suspects early on. But, again, one by one, they just kind of fell by the wayside. And people would get ruled out. That suspect from the prison sounded great, but you know what? It wasn't him either. So, you know, at this point, what did they do? They created a profile. That's what you do in situations like this. Now, again, profiles can do some things they can't do others but they do provide certain characteristics and traits that may help uh, society distinguish this assailant compared to the other people in society I mean it's just I don't know It, it profiles are interesting especially if they match up but basically what they developed was um they took the evidence found at the crime scene and taken from possible suspects in the slain, and they gave that to the state crime lab. And in 1988, they used some new techniques on blood, hair, and fiber comparisons. And again, in the Lanet child murder case, the fiber is actually what connected Wayne Williams to a couple of the cases. Now, the profile developed with the help of the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, again, founded by John Douglas, indicated that the killer was a white male, 25 to 35 years old, of average to above average intelligence and probably lived nearby. He was married to his second or third wife, is in a strained relationship, and possibly has financial problems. Associates probably regarded him as having an explosive personality. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. As you guys know, 2020 was terrible, and things are still pretty terrible. But today I am happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything that's holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. 
You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient because with the current state of the world, it really needs to be. So now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions. And you can also chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if, for whatever reason, you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your smartphone or your computer, so you are never out of touch. So again, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, heck, not getting a good enough night's sleep, trauma, LGBT matters. They literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And the thing I like most is that this is actually an affordable option. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So when I get started today, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get you matched with a counselor that you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All right, we are back. Now, I'm always fascinated to read these profiles because some of them get real detailed, such as the suspect being on his second or third wife. It's either an amazing skill or a whole lot of guesswork. And I'm not going to downplay profiling, so we're going to call it a whole lot of skill. In 1989, Lieutenant Gatlin said that he hoped the reward money would eventually produce a break in the case. I mean, he said, uh, this is our best chance. If there's somebody out there who knows something, maybe they'd want the money badly enough, they'd actually come and tell us. And again, Mrs. Laws shares the same frustration. Quote, I don't see how it's possible for somebody not to have seen something or heard something. Somebody knows what happened to my son. I just wish they would come forward. Fast forward 31 years, and the Atlanta General Constitution is still at it. With an article titled, Police Issue New Plea for Clues in 88 Killing. They go on to state that detectives were reaching out to witnesses 31 years after the boy's body was found. Ben Brash, who was a writer for the AGC, wrote, Cherry Laws had the dollar ready for her 8-year-old son when the ice cream truck bell rang, but he never came for it. That was 7 p.m. on May 15, 1988. Knowing something was wrong, minutes later she called police and reported her only son, Joshua Harmon, missing. And again... This is what happened to Joshua, and this is basically where everything goes to hell in a handbasket, because nobody knows what happened after that point. And especially when this article was written, it was the 31st anniversary of Josh's disappearance. And again, the detectives were still reaching out to witnesses, trying to look back, see if anything triggered any memories. And again, this is just them another Hail Mary. This They don't even really have anything they're going off of. Now, the department 
still has some had some evidence from the initial investigation and acknowledged in a news release how far forensic technology had come. Now, it wasn't clear when or why they stated this and if DNA actually played a new role in this renewed effort. But they did say, quote, but science is not all that can be used to catch this killer. And according to the Fulton County Medical Examiner at the time, said that Josh's body, which was found in a nearby gully, had been purposely concealed. As stated before, the GBI's crime analysis unit worked with the FBI's behavioral science unit to create a profile, which, again, like I said just a minute ago, probably somebody between 25 and 35 years old. Now, this is just crazy because it's 31 years later and when you see a number like this, such as it was 1,613 weeks ago when Joshua Harmon was last seen alive. Unfortunately, it would be another two years. But this is when the big break would happen. And we would have a big, big break. Georgia police arrested and charged a man in Joshua's death. James Michael Coates, 56, was arrested and charged in June of felony murder, aggravated assault, aggravated child molestation, concealing the death of another, and tampering with evidence. Quote, the death of Josh and the fact that his killer remained free for such a long time is unimaginable, Roswell Police Chief James Conroy said in a news release Friday. Quote, I hope this arrest brings the Harmon family a sense of closure. Joshua's parents reported him missing 33 years ago, in May 1988. His body was discovered again in that wooded area just behind his apartment building. And this was only, again, 20 miles north of Atlanta. Now, despite all the investigations, it wasn't until they exhumed Joshua's body in February of 2021 in hopes of actually finding some new evidence of course, this came with permission from the family. And they used funding that was given to them by the Georgia Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Task Force to pursue additional DNA testing on evidence from the crime scene. Again, police did not detail the nature of the evidence, but the results of the DNA testing connected Coates to Joshua's murder. Coates was taken into custody Wednesday, July 21st, after police initiated a traffic stop while he was riding in an Uber. Conroy confirmed during his news conference on Friday. Now, Georgia corrections records show Coates was previously convicted of child molestation charges in 1993 for a separate incident. And speaking at a Friday news conference, on behalf of the family, Joshua's aunt, Marlene Carlisle, thanked law enforcement for their dedication to solving the case, saying it was bittersweet for the family. Quote, these bulldogs 
that got through everything and worked for 33 years to solve this for our family, we are forever indebted to all of you, she said. Josh was an amazing young boy who had an uncanny relationship with nature and God. So I know where he is, and I know he's at peace, Carlisle went on to say. Joshua's mother, Cherry, unfortunately passed away last October. And Carlisle would go on to say that my sister never gave up. I know she's smiling down on everybody here today, and thanks you all so much. The case is very interesting, and, you know, one of the ironic things is that he was actually from Woodstock, and that's where Joshua's parents had moved to after Joshua was found murdered. So to think that they were so close to this guy who uh, had killed their child is just bittersweet, like Carlisle said. I mean, it's just, it's a tragedy that this man or person, evil person, child molester, was able to live for free for all these years while Josh's family was left in a prison of unknowns and it just sucks. I mean, just plain sucks for Josh's family, for the city of Roswell, and for really all the investigators who pretty much put their heart and soul into the, into this case because it's really one of those things that you are stuck with. I mean... I've talked about it with Mark Spetzel. If you don't solve a case before you retire, that case will still stay with you forever. And it's so good to see that in some of these cases, there is perseverance and there are great things that can come from looking back at a case. I mean, if they wouldn't have exhumed Joshua's body in February of 2021, we would never have been to this situation. I mean, that is how they got this guy. I mean, James Michael Coates, hey, dirtball, get the hell in jail and brought there for the rest of your life. That is justice because you certainly don't belong to be on anywhere other than where you are right now. And I hope, you know, prison has a way of dealing out their own forms of justice. So have fun. The rest of your life, uh, enjoy the misery that you have created for yourself and for all the other murderers out there and dirtball child molesters, you too. One day, somebody's going to knock on your door and guess what? You're going to jail, buddy. And you know what people don't like in jail? They don't like child molesters. So if you don't want to go to jail, stop molesting children and stop being a dirtball. So... On that note, such a lovely note, we're going to end this week's episode. But before we do, I'm going to play you the press conference because it's great. It's 19 minutes of pretty much kudos all around. And it's nice to hear from a family member who says the things that we all feel. So James Michael Coates, Rotten Hell, Joshua Harmon, hope you're living it all up in heaven with your mom. And everything's good with you. And to all the listeners, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, as well as you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And if you want to, you can also 
donate to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-hoffman-3 or via PayPal. And again, all of that goes to directly to the show. And it really does help support all the Slow Burn podcasts. So no matter how big of a contribution, big or small, they're always appreciated. If you don't want to donate any money, totally cool. If you could leave a five-star review, that also helps keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. So again, kudos to the investigators for sticking it out for 33 years. Kudos to the Carlisle family, or for the to the Harmon family, Carlisle. Uh, I mean, there there's a bunch of different family members involved in this case. I apologize for not naming all of them, but it's amazing that they have been able to stick together. And it's a shame that Joshua's mom was not able to see justice delivered. But listen to this press conference. Sit back and enjoy hearing law enforcement commend themselves on a job well done and taking a real big dirt bag off the street so again thank you guys so much for listening and as always stay healthy and be safe all right good morning everyone and thank you all for being here my name is tim lupo i am the public information officer for the roswell police department we're here today to announce that an arrest has been made in the investigation into the 1988 murder of eight-year-old Joshua Harmon. Joining us today are members of our command staff, criminal investigations division, as well as agency partners that played a critical role in bringing us to where we are today. So I'll take a moment to introduce who we have with us today. Um, Chief of Police James Conroy. We have Lieutenant Jason Westcott, Detective Zach Kowalski, Detective David Zagan, Officer Jennifer Bennett, Deputy Chief Linnea Rivard, Captain Noah Kaplan, and Detective Sean Thompson. Present from our agency partners as well, we have Executive Director of the CJCC, Jane Neal. Amy Hutzel, Program Director of the Sexual Assault, Child Abuse, and Human Trafficking Unit of the CJCC. Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Lisa Varasi of the GBI. And Chief Deputy of Morgan County, Keith Howard, formerly of the GBI. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. So um, we are very pleased as well and honored to have several members of, the, of Joshua's family with us today to lend their support and presence as well. I will begin pre- providing an initial summary of the investigation. We will then hear from Roswell Police Chief James Conroy, followed by Assistant Special Agent in Charge Lisa Varasi of the GBI. Um, We will then have comments from members of Joshua's family as well. Chief Conroy will then return to address any questions that you may have related to this case. With that said, I will begin by providing an overview summary of the case in the form of our press release. The Roswell Police Department has made an arrest in the 1988 murder of eight-year-old Joshua Harmon. James Michael Coates, age 56, of the city of Woodstock, was taken into custody July 21st and booked into the Fulton County Jail on multiple charges, including murder. Roswell detectives arrested Coates after DNA evidence collected from the crime scene linked him to the murder. 
On May 15, 1988, Joshua Harmon was reported missing by his parents after not returning home for dinner. After extensive searches over the following 48 hours, Joshua's body was discovered in a wooded area nearby to the Raintreeway apartment where he lived. Roswell detectives, in partnership with the GBI, investigated the case extensively and collected valuable evidence, but the case went cold. Investigators regularly revisited the case over the intervening years in pursuit of justice for Joshua and his family, and evidence was consistently re-examined to keep pace with evolving leads and advancing technology. In February of this year, with the permission of his family, Joshua's body was exhumed in hopes of identifying further evidence. In March, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative Task Force, a subset of the Georgia Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, provided the Roswell Police Department with funding to pursue additional DNA testing on evidence from the crime scene. Recently, investigators received the results of that testing performed by an independent laboratory, Cybergenetics Incorporated, which linked Coates to the crime. He was taken into custody without incident on a traffic stop the morning of July 21st. At this time, I will now turn it over to Chief Conroy. Thank you, Tim. All right, good morning. After 33 years, two months, and six days, we have made an arrest in the murder of Joshua Harmon. To the Harmon family, this is a tragedy that no family should endure. The death of Joshua and the fact that his killer remained free for such a long time is unimaginable. I hope that this arrest brings your family a sense of closure. I only wish that Joshua's mother, Sherry, could be here today. But what I do know is that she is with Joshua and they're looking down on us and they are happy with these developments. This arrest was a team effort involving many of our partners. As you heard, the GBI, Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, were instrumental in helping us. The men and women behind me and those who could not be here today deserve to be thanked and commended. These officers, detectives, special agents, attorneys, scientists, retirees never gave up hope in solving this case and bringing Josh's killer to justice. They are truly heroes, and I thank each and every one of you for your dedication and perseverance. Shortly after I was selected to be Chief of Police for the Roswell Police Department, and before I started, I attended a law enforcement event where I met two retired GBI agents. They pulled me aside, congratulated me on coming to Roswell, and said, when you get there, we want you to pull up the Joshua Harmon case. We want you to look into it. It's a case that haunted them for many years, and they felt that it was still solvable. In my first days at the Roswell Police Department, I met with our Criminal Investigation Division. Detective Kowalski was in there, and he asked me my position on cold case homicides. So being a former homicide investigator myself, I told him I'm supportive in investigating them, and I feel that we owe it, owe it to the victims to periodically review these cases and pursue every lead that we can. He then discussed uh, the, Josh the Joshua Harmon case with me, and I committed that I would provide the needed support, funding, and resources to investigate this case. DNA is an expensive proposition, and I was able to reach out to some of our partners at the GBI and the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council to help cover some of those expenses and provide assistance as needed. With the assistance of our partners, we were able to secure the evidence needed to file charges in this case. In a moment, we're going to take some questions. 
And as you can imagine, this is a very complex case. We still have a lot of work to do. As such, we will not jeopardize the prosecution by discussing specific details of the investigation or specific evidence involved. We will happily take any questions and remind you that this case will be tried in the court of law and justice will be served. I would like to uh, invite up a representative from the GBI to speak. Lisa, if you want to come up. My name is Lisa Varasi, and I'm an assistant special agent in charge of the Atlanta Regional Office of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. On behalf of the GBI, I want to thank the Roswell Police Department for requesting our assistance with the investigation into the brutal killing of an eight-year-old boy who loved ice cream and playing outside with his friends. Beginning over 33 years ago and until today, the GBI and the Roswell Police Department worked together and expended thousands of hours investigating this crime. Over the years, this case has touched, been touched by many extremely talented agents, detectives, and crime lab scientists to get where we are today. All of these people had one thing in common. They would not stop at anything until justice was brought for Joshua. To solve this case required grit, determination, and perseverance from all involved. There were countless roadblocks, dead ends, and obstacles that had to be overcome. Blood, sweat, and tears were shed to get to this point. This investigation is one that haunts an investigator and the kind of case that keeps detectives and agents up at night. Our hope is that this arrest is the beginning of healing for his loved ones who have lived the nightmare since Sunday, May 15, 1988. The Roswell Police Department is a first-class agency and should be commended for never giving up on this case. The men and women of the GBI are honored to have a great relationship with the fine men and women of the Roswell Police Department who literally stopped at nothing to bring justice to a little boy which none of us will ever forget. Thank you. I will now invite anybody from, the, from Joshua's family that would like to come up and provide a statement. Feel free to introduce yourself as well. Hi, my name is Marlene Carlisle. I am Sherry Harmon's sister and Joshua's aunt. Um, I want to speak on behalf of our family um, and thank these amazing people who have worked diligently and very hard and always took anything and everything we had to say to heart and ran with it and these bulldogs that got through everything and worked for 33 years to solve this for our family, we are forever indebted to all of you. You're amazing people, and every one of you have big, beautiful hearts. And our family has been through this for 33 years, and to be able to be relieved of this, it's bittersweet for us. Um, we wish Sherry could be here, but we also feel that she and Josh high-fived and said, we're going to help and we're going to get everybody through this and helped these ladies and gentlemen come to this conclusion. Um, thank you, everybody. Josh was an amazing young boy. Um, 
who had an uncanny relationship with nature and with God. Um, so I know where he is and I know he's at peace. And uh, my sister never gave up, ever gave up. She kept going. She made that phone call every few years to the point of probably bothering some people, but she, she was w willing and able to do it. And um, I know she's smiling down on everybody here today and thanks you all so much. And on behalf again of our family, we love you and we thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your strength, resiliency, and trust for being with us today. Um, Chief Conroy will now return to address any questions Joe may have. Thank you, Tim. Quick question. If this guy did this to Joshua, how do you guys know that in 33 years he didn't do this to another kid? So how do we know he didn't do this to another kid? That, of course, will be part of uh, our ongoing investigation. As I mentioned, we do have a lot of work to do. Um, we do uh, partner with the, with the GBI to where they will uh, compare DNA samples in the CODIS database for any open cases that are still out there. Chief, yes, uh, I know this brings a lot of closure to the family. Question, was there any evidence that was compromised or destroyed by any of the investigating agencies? So I've heard comments about it, but I don't know firsthand of that, no. Okay. Chief, can you talk about some of the challenges with this case? I remember the um, special agent wanted to mention that. She said it was very challenging, a lot of roadblocks. What were some of the challenges? You know, one, any time that you, you work on a cold case investigation, there's many challenges, challenges you can't even imagine. Um, right before I came out here, I did a little bit of math. So Detective Kowalski, who was inter instrumental in this case, was not even born when this incident occurred. You have uh, many retirees, many people who uh, worked on this case that are now retired or have since passed away. Um, evidence, finding evidence merely from cases that old is very difficult. Um, it's, there's a lot of challenges and that's why I say we have a lot of hard work to do. We've already, we've been in heavy contact with the district attorney's office because getting the evidence to make an arrest is one thing, but then getting enough evidence and presenting that in a court of law to get a conviction is another thing entirely. And just speak on that. I mean, with age and time, people forget certain parts of the story. How, how miraculous is this that you guys were able to kind of get this thing finally to come together? So, so to make it a, a, to be able to close a cold case is a very rare feat. Um, in my career, um, I can think of one at DeKalb that we had that was a, a cold case. And uh, in this case here at Roswell is the only two that I'm familiar that I've worked on. I have had cases where we've made arrests and they went to trial perhaps 25 years later. But by that point, we had already had search war or warrants in place and knew who we were charging. So it's vastly different to go back and, and investigate. But when you have advances in, in technology, such as DNA, um, which was instrumental in this case, we have to periodically review that. You know, when this occurred um, in, the, in the late 80s, DNA was not a very common thing. And as DNA evolves, then we must continually go and reevaluate all the cases we have and the evidence that we have. And as I mentioned, it is a very expensive proposition. So we do have to reach out to our partners at the CJCC and the GBI and these private labs in order to get this information um, processed in a, in a timely manner. Now, who spoke with the, when you guys finally broke this case, I don't know which one of you guys wrote there. 
when you, after so many years, I know she spoke about her sister would call every now and then. And then originally you're like, hey, there's no, there's nothing going on, we're still, and then finally be able to go, hey, we have something. How rewarding is that in that, that, that mountain that comes off the family shoulder, just knowing what? So, so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna turn around and see, is there somebody who used to work on the case that would like to come up and talk a little bit about your history? Because I saw, I saw their uh, reunification with the family of somebody who worked on this long ago. Um, Detective Bennett, I know, was, um, was working with Sherry quite a bit um, on this investigation. But come on up and, and tell. So from my perspective, it's, uh, it's very emotional. It's like uh, a marriage, having a child. It's, um, uh, it's really hard to put uh, into words the, the emotion and the feeling you feel. Certainly there's uh, simply for the family, they have the lost one. This case was about Joshua. I mean, this case was about uh, him being the victim. Uh, everyone I met throughout my uh, involvement in this, which was over uh, 20 years, um, was always passionate about making sure they solved this case. Um, Sherry was the catalyst for that. Uh, yes, uh, my involvement was generated by the fact that she wrote a letter to then director uh, Buddy Nix. Uh, he was the new director at the time and she was asking him to please look into this case. Mr. Nix came to me and asked me to look at that from a cold case perspective. Um, so having lived through that emotion of talking to Sherry at the time, sharing emails through the years, um, absolutely. Um, I didn't know the family as well as the rest of them here that lived in Roswell. But certainly those emotions to me are um, miraculous is the word you used and that's, that's probably the word I would use to say bringing this case together is a miraculous feat. Uh, and I don't disagree. I think that the uh, blessing in this is the glory to God. Sherry, Joshua, reunited. I do believe that they're the ones that said let's get this thing started and they, they brought the uh, evidence forward that we were able to use in this case. So. Keith Howard. Yeah, and that's some of the evidence that I don't want to get into just so we don't jeopardize the prosecution in this case. So I'm going to defer to our detectives. Um, again, I don't want to give many details, but do we want to give any of the, the, the details of the arrest? Yeah, so, so my understanding, yes, when we arrested him, um, he was a passenger in an Uber. And we had arrest warrants prior to that traffic stop. Another hard question, just real quick. Was he known to the family at all? I mean, just because of the, I'm looking at his picture, he seems like a little older gentleman. I don't know if there was any connection or, because back in those days, you, you know what I mean, it was a little different and you really didn't, you know what I mean? But now, times are different, but was there any connection between him and the family before? Is that kind of getting too so, Yes, yes, there was. Um, there was, they, yes, so the family did, live in the same uh, apartment complex at the time. Um, we may not, they may not have actually known his name, but kind of knew who he was. Uh, Lieutenant Jason Westcott. Anything else? 
right. Again, I appreciate you coming out here. Um, we have indicated that the family did not want to speak. Is that still the case uh, with reporters afterwards? Okay, so we ask you please respect their privacy as we go through this. Uh, there is still a lot of work to do. It is a long road um, prosecution and you know that's stuff that is difficult on the family so I appreciate you uh, honoring that request. So thank you. One more. What is your message to the community that might be going through some of this and not to give up, always keep it what would be your message to yeah, and I think the message is law enforcement uh, agencies across the country, this is an example of many officers, detectives, scientists who did not give up. They will not give up. Um, we do have a number of cold case uh, homicides here in Roswell that we are continually evaluating and testing, and we do work on those. But um, when you get into this profession, you get into this profession to help people. And when you have something as tragic as, as the uh, kidnapping and murder of an eight-year-old, um, that locks into your heart, and that's something you don't want to give up. When you look at the timing, and I talked about, you know, Zach wasn't even born yet when this happened, uh, probably 85% of my police department was not born when this happened. Uh, when this happened, I was not a police officer. I was in college. So since then, I've worked a 30-year career and retired, come to another department and continued. Um, before this arrest was made. So this shows you that uh, the police officers are not gonna stop. Um, we will continue until justice is done. Right. Okay, thank you everybody and have a great day. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.